0: Does anyone else have that friend whom you love dearly but you've never quite figured out what they do for a living? Well, this is me and my partner in doctoral studies, David Hillman. We shared many swears, pet names for office equipment and ice creams together on the few sunny days we ventured outside. But somehow it's taken me 16 years to actually understand his work. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And here he is in our episode entitled The Pharmaco Vigilante." Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Two Scientists podcast where inspiring scientists share their work with you wherever you like to listen. Today we come to you from a rather unique spot rather than a cafe or bar. We are camped out in Kensington Gardens in London because it's a glorious day and our podcasting equipment allows us to do that. But enough about me and us. Uh, we are here today, of course. I am your host, Pam here, and we're here with David Basanta. But we also have with us another David, who is very special to me. He is an old friend of mine from my PhD program, and we shared much time and much swearing over experiments together at University College London. How are you, David Hillman?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. It's uh, As you say, it's a, it's a lovely day, and um, it's nice to be back with old friends. <laughs>
0: Yes, yes, of course everything rotates back around to Covid and uh, whereas we would normally see each other once a year, it's been three, four, possibly?
1: Three I think. Yeah. Miserable. Yeah. Sad times. We We shall make make up up for it. it.
0: We will. We will. There's a bottle of Carver with our name on it once we've done with this. And onion rings. And onion rings, yes. Fancy Marks and Spencer's one though. So let's start at the beginning. I'm not talking about, like, where were you born kind of thing. Although you can mention Kidderminster if you'd like. (laughs) So, as I understand it, we had a relatively similar track as undergraduates. So you did a a bachelor's in pharmacology, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: So tell us why. Why pharmacology?
1: So this is going to age me, age us. So I, for my A-levels, so for my senior school exams, I studied chemistry, biology and maths and I wanted to study something at university that combined chemistry and biology and so this is the bit that will age us so back in the day if you remember you would go to the uh, career (laughs) advice department who were trying to help people to steer people towards what options they might want to pick at university and they had this huge telephone directory effectively which mapped together people's different combinations of A level courses and then gave you a list of options that you could um, study at university. So I was sat in this little tiny room with this career advisor person and they were basically running through this list of different courses. And when it came to pharmacology they'd already mentioned pharmacy which you know most people know what it is but then they said pharmacology and I stopped them and said well what's what's the difference and they actually gave a pretty good summary they said it's more the biology of medicine and it's more the the research and development of new medicines they said it's potentially a controversial topic because it's the pharmaceutical industry is itself sometimes controversial and there's there's other aspects um, to, to the industry which are challenging sometimes but yeah that's how it started so I picked a few different pharmacology courses one of which was King's College London I was always very practical so I liked the idea of doing a year in industry at some point so I chose a sandwich course like you and yeah so that took me to KCL um, all that time ago
0: mmm so I didn't realize how similar our tracks had been because I also did biology chemistry and maths and I wanted to do something with the chemistry and the biology and I got put in that direction by did you pick my... it out
1: of a phone book as well
0: I did what was it called there was a name for it
1: it was probably like, like a UCAS publication.
0: Yes. It was just, it was enormous. Yeah. But yeah, in any case, I also, I did a sandwich year and I got to go and hang out in Germany for a year, which was fun. But yeah, so obviously after that, you came to do a PhD at UCL where we were, well, I was a year ahead of you, I think.
1: Yep, you were.
0: Why? Why okay. did you do a PhD? So,
1: well, for the reasons that I guess a lot of people do them, which is that I wasn't sure what to do next <laughs> and a PhD seemed like a good way to string it out for another few years before I figure that out. But the reason I landed on UCL was that when I did go and do my year in industry, which like you was for a large pharma company, I worked in a lab looking at some non-clinical safety models and we were using electrophysiology techniques. At the time that was sharp electrode electrophysiology. You're going to
0: have to explain what electrophysiology means. Oh,
1: don't make me do that. It's been 20 <laughs> years. Oh. It's basically where you take either isolated cells or tissues and you put tiny, tiny electrodes into them and measure the changing currents across cell membranes and as you put different drugs on, you can look at different effects of those drugs, how they affect the electrical signals that you can measure. And really it's ions moving back and forward across membranes via little things called ion channels. So yeah, so I've done sharp electrode electrophysiology there I went back to university to finish my last year and then the question came up about what to pick for a PhD and I thought well although I hadn't enjoyed electrophysiology it's something that I had started to I guess gain an interest in plus I had some skills that in that area so yeah so I found of course rather a PhD studentship the UCL which seemed to fit the bill it was looking at using a slightly different electrophysiology technique so patch clamping in a different area but i thought it was something that i could use what i'd learnt in my urine industry
0: so i gave you some of these questions beforehand yes because i'm even...
1: incapable of spontaneous reaction <laughs> to questions
0: actually i loved it so much that i have to read out your description of what your memory is like
1: i was quite proud of that i coined that yesterday i used to think of my memory as a lobster pot
0: all right so you said i've just come up with a good analogy for my recall memory it's like a reference library you have to put in a request and then go away for a bit when you come back i'll have retrieved something from the vaults hopefully
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: (laughs) but aside from that i wanted to say this might be something of a loaded question but what did you think of your phd experience Mm.
1: You know, I really, I look back on those years with fond memory. Now, it's partly because looking back, you edit out all of the stress and anxiety associated with doing a research project like that. I remember at the time when I first started, UCL ran some induction courses where they pulled together PhD students and other postgraduate students from all sorts of backgrounds and John Foreman, who you'll remember, who was the Dean of Students at the time, he gave a little introduction to UCL but also gave some interesting advice, let's say, and pointers. (laughs) And one of the things he pointed out in that session was the high degree of mental illness that is encountered by students in general taking these types of courses because they are stressful and you often feel like you're kind of on your own um driving your own research project forward sometimes through difficult times so i do remember that in particular but you know what i remember mostly is just how impressed i was with all of the people that surrounded me because Our department was not particularly flashy in its kind of presentation but there were some seriously impressive people there so I always like to think of our lab in the sense of you know it was run by effectively by Dennis and and Guy when we got there but before then it had been run by Don and before then it had been run by Bernard Katz who was a Nobel laureate so it felt like we were the either grandchildren or great-grandchildren of a a Nobel laureate, and the the whole department was a bit like that. It had a lot of very understated people who were world experts in their, in their field, and I always felt like the dumbest person in the department, but that didn't bother me too much because you know, being surrounded by all this greatness, and even just, you know, the little glimpses of things you'd see at the kind of coffee breaks and in the corridors, some of those memories still live with me, you know. Bearing in mind this was back in, what, between 2001 and 2005, the, so very, very early days of smartphones, things like trios and things like that, which seem antiquated now, but I remember coming across two old professors, so probably in their 70s or 80s, comparing their smartphones, and that, like, little microcosm of the things that I loved about the, the department.
0: Yeah. And actually, I mean... I think you're you're definitely selling yourself short. Like nobody would say that you weren't smart enough to be there. And I think one of the things that kind of ties into the, the mental health aspect is that we all felt that way. Yeah. Except we didn't express it to anyone else. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. It's like How can we all be the least smart person in the room? That's just not possible. Yeah. And after that, we all got our PhDs anyway. So, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I cer- certainly have no regrets about it, and I look back on those times with, with very fond memories, for sure.
0: Yeah, give us a, just talk briefly about what you did for your project and what the difficulties were.
1: So, the lab that I joined, so which which you were a part of as well, their speciality was calcium-activated potassium channels, and over time the lab had looked at these iron channels in various different settings the project that i was given was looking at these channels in vascular endothelial cells which was a cell type that no one in the lab had ever studied before Mm. so one of the biggest challenges that we were hit with straight away was that no one in the lab could really help that much with first-hand experience of how to obtain these cells, how to isolate them, how to culture them, how to grow them, and really how to manage those cell types. So you might well remember that, you know, the first probably nine months of my PhD was just spent trying to culture these cells. Mm -hmm. And it started with, you know, available tissue from rats and and other small mammals. But then eventually we were not having success with culturing cells from uh, those models. So I switched on to pigs and, you know, I'd I'd done a bit of reading that, you know, these vessels, because they were much larger, the blood vessels, it was easier effectively to culture cells from. So I looked in the phone book and I found the address of an abattoir out in the (laughs) middle of Essex and there began my weekly trip for getting on for two and a half years to the deepest darkest corners of Essex to go and retrieve pig coronary artery cells once a week
0: yeah and essentially you suffered because these things were so flat (laughs) and when you're trying to so you you, for anyone who's listening you have to picture trying to get a very very fine tube onto something that is incredibly flat and essentially you need this thing to form a vacuum seal and that just wasn't going to happen
1: No, because, I mean, we, I think we estimated at the time that, so, you know, vascular endothelial cells, they're the cells that line blood vessels, which Mm. is why they're they're very flat. They're like tiles almost on the inside of of veins and arteries. And, you know, with other cells in the lab that were being looked at, like the ones that you were looking at, like DRGs and like neurons and things like that, you know, you were basically putting the, the electrode down onto like a ball. Yeah. So the gap between the bottom of the dish and the top of the cell was, who knows, 10, 20 microns, something like that. The cells that we were looking at, they flattened themselves out so much, they were about one micron, I think we estimated. And therefore the tiniest vibration in the room would destroy the cell. And yeah, so the first stage was trying to culture the damn things. And that was extremely challenging, took a long time, but nine months of the way through, managed it. And then began the whole pain of trying to get electrical recordings from them, which turned out to be as
0: difficult. Yeah, so one of the things, I don't know if you ever talked about this, but what did you aspire to do after you'd done your PhD originally? (laughs) Like, did you have any kind of idea? Uh,
1: I mean, I think I was always headed into the pharmaceutical industry, which is where I landed up. In my undergrad degree, and I think my either first or second year, I did a very nice course which was a kind of practical introduction to the pharmaceutical industry and f- f- from very top level how drugs are developed and how pharma companies are organised internally and how the research progresses and that I always found that interesting I mean I find the entire pharmaceutical industry absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and still do to this day it's such an amazingly complex industry and so yeah so I think I'd always been heading in that direction sure enough the phd certainly made me decide i was done with bench science (laughs) so you know by the time you've spent three plus years plodding along with these experiments that have a success rate of one in 50 sometimes you know days and weeks without getting any data and towards the end still being in the lab at three o'clock in the morning trying to get something to work and breaking more and more glassware as time goes on (laughs) Yeah, I decided I was done with bench science, although I loved being in the labs. I loved playing in Mm -hmm. in the labs. But I was never that into the kind of reading of the scientific papers and that sort of thing. Once it came down to maths and things like that, I wasn't so engaged. I needed to see practical things.
0: Yeah, I feel like at some point we realised we're both some kind of engineer at heart rather than scientist. maybe. It's more like, how does this work rather than trying to answer a bigger scientific question? But obviously you were... You were a little bit scarred by your experience there and you ended up going off in i guess a very different track from what the standard academic education leads you towards so i think at this point this might be a good place to put your disclaimer in
1: (laughs) yes so uh so i work in the pharmaceutical industry and over time i've worked for and with a variety of different companies any of the content that i describe today are my opinions and my opinions alone and often they're really based off things which are in the public domain in fact it's all based off things that are in the public domain and also some of the education and i've received cuz actually even after I finished my PhD, I then, years later, went on to study a, another academic course specifically in pharmacovigilance and pharmacoepidemiology. Um, oh, where did which you is do that? London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Oh. Um, and it's interesting because it's a short course, and, and I felt it was a very valuable course. It's a course where regulator authorities also send their people to learn too.
0: So there's a lot of questions I can ask next, but one of the things that your job description throws up is this word pharmacovigilance what does that mean
1: okay so somewhere because i'm not going to do it justice from memory i'm going to read out the who definition of pharmacovigilance it doesn't roll off the tongue unfortunately which is why it's never quite there in my head So per the WHO, pharmacovigilance is the science and activities relating to the detection, assessment, understanding and prevention of adverse effects or any other medicine or vaccine related problem. So essentially it is the process and the science relating to drug side effects. Now as you'll remember from pharmacology days, very early on you are taught that all pharmacologically active substances, if it applies to the human body, have side effects. The same as side effects are not encountered by every person and, you know, some of the side effects might have obvious clinical manifestations, some might not. You might get side effects and never know you've had them, but of course they vary massively in severity. So, when you're looking at a medicine, particularly one that you're introducing to kind of general use in humans, you have a trade-off to make because you have an expected therapeutic benefit, but you also have to be mindful of potential side effects, particularly serious side effects, and how much tolerance you have for those versus the good that the drug is supposed to do and achieving that balance is is one of the big challenges that's faced in drug development
0: so what you do really is it kind of comes at the end of the whole process of clinical trials and so on for for given products right it actually
1: starts right at the beginning of clinical development so
0: Oh, hang on, I, I have to ask David's question. Does that make you a pharmacovigilante?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've often wondered the same thing myself. But yeah, so pharmacovigilance takes off really where toxicology leaves. So before you can put a drug into clinical development, by which I mean development in humans, mm. drugs first have to go through preclinical development, and that's where all the various toxicology studies are run.
0: Can you quickly define toxicology for us? Sure.
1: It is really focusing on the, well, the potentially toxic side of medicines. So before you put a drug anywhere near a human, you want to be absolutely certain that it doesn't cause various catastrophic side effects in humans. So, for example, you need to be confident that it doesn't cause cancer. You need to be confident that it's not going to cause a heart attack immediately or cause a stroke immediately or things like that. So as per regulations in pretty much every country in the world, before you put a drug anywhere near a human in a clinical trial, it has to go through a standard set of tests. And there's various ways to achieve that. You know, sometimes those are tests using computer simulated models. Sometimes they are using individual cells or cultured cells or tissues. And sometimes, as is well known in the industry, they're using animal models. And these are legally required tests. So Mm. every drug that goes through the process has to go through these so that's done before it gets to clinical development and then you start with phase one clinical trials which are studies on usually on healthy volunteers and they're very small trials they involve perhaps a a few tens of patients and the only purpose of those trials is to look at the safety and tolerability of the drug so this is the first time you're putting the drug into humans there is a bit of an exception to, to that so although these are usually conducted on healthy volunteers for some drugs including for example oncology drugs those drugs are usually along the more kind of toxic end of agents so it's not ethical to put those into healthy volunteers so sometimes those studies are conducted in a patient population so once a drug moves into human studies into phase one from that point Really, for the rest of the lifetime of that drug as a human medicine, pharmacovigilance is involved. So all the way through the phase one, two, and three studies, and then once the drug goes onto the market, pharmacovigilance continues. So the companies, so the pharmaceutical or biotech companies that are developing these assets have a legal requirement to collect and analyse this data on an ongoing basis, pretty much forever, until that drug is eventually, perhaps if it's lucky enough to get to the market, until it's withdrawn from the market, perhaps many decades later.
0: Very good, and I think that there are probably some very topical things that have come up recently as a result of COVID-19, which is important to consider when we're talking about these things, Mm -hmm. in that we're not just relying on these clinical trials that have gone out to ensure that these things are safe, but once they're out there, that you have to continue to get feedback from people who are taking these to ensure that they continue to be safe in the long term, right?
1: That's true. So, you know, ordinarily in clinical development, once you get through phase one, two, three, and if you're lucky enough to have a drug which is sufficiently efficacious and tolerable to to go to market, then yes, you know, the drug's released to market and you continue to to monitor for this stuff. Vaccines are in a particularly special category because they are drugs that are given to healthy people. Yes. And so, therefore, the benefit-risk balance is more complicated in some ways because you know it's it's hard to consider the benefit to the individual of taking a product when they don't yet have that disease. So now there are other drugs that are in similar category, other drugs that are given to healthy people. This is where I can ask you some questions. So, what what do you think those other drugs include?
0: Oh goodness, um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head what they might be
1: yeah it's very unfair
0: all I can think of at the moment are the other vaccines okay so But there are lots of prophylactic things yeah yeah. I can't think of anything
1: contraceptives the Um, obvious prophylactic (laughs) yes drugs used for travel so things like anti-malaria tablets
0: Oh yeah
1: drugs used for things like smoking cessation Mm -hmm. stuff like that so again these are these are all drugs that are generally given to healthy people so You know, and this is where benefit risk balance comes into sharp focus because if you have a drug that has been developed to treat a very hard to treat cancer, let's say, then when you consider benefit risk balance, you know, if these patients are effectively going to die without a treatment and this is the only treatment available, you might be able to accept that a drug has a one in a hundred chance of causing a fatal stroke particularly if that drug's given in hospital and these things can be can be managed if however you're developing a cough medicine then your tolerance for any type of dangerous side effect is basically zero and of course many drugs elsewhere on that scale so yeah benefit risk balance is a key part of what has to be looked at during drug development and yeah as we say vaccines are particularly challenging Often these days when a new drug is developed, the clinical developments and the the studies don't stop necessarily when the drug is released for marketing. So often as a condition of the marketing authorizations that are granted for these drugs, there have to be continuing studies to look at safety. These are called post-authorization safety studies. And so yes, there's ongoing collection of data in a, a rigorous way to keep monitoring for various things. either. Either new things that we didn't know about the drug before, because, of course, when you're in clinical development, your number of patients is normally quite small, Mm -hmm. so you're less likely to spot very rare side effects. You wouldn't usually detect a 1 in 50,000 probability side effect in a clinical trial cohort, but sometimes these post-authorization safety studies allow you to pick up more of that and enable you to characterize some of the side effects that you do know about more in detail
0: yeah so david b here asks essentially how long do these things go on after the drug's been on the market for example is there still pharmacovigilance for aspirin
1: yes every single drug that has a marketing authorization out there it is the law in pretty much every country in the world that all safety data that becomes available to the marketing authorization holders that's the company that owns the rights to the drug and effectively sells the drug yeah they're required by law to collect Process, analyse and report this data. Now, as drugs age, the natural reporting rate for some of these drugs drops. So, Mm -hmm. the probability of a physician or a pharmacist or a nurse or even a patient reporting a side effect probably drops over time because these are not new medicines anymore. But even so, any data that is collected has to go through that process, which is the pharmacovigilance that we were referring to earlier. In addition to that all companies with marketing authorizations have to look at scientific and medical literature um, it all has to be reviewed so in european requirements including the uk on a weekly basis mm. companies have to trawl some of the big literature databases such as pubmed and mbase they have to trawl that information for any articles on their drugs and any indication of yeah side effects or other similar challenges
0: so how is this information collected and processed because you've said obviously doctors nurses patients they will all report certain things Mm -hmm. how do you kind of get them to a central place and catalogued and how do you decide what are actual side effects versus
1: (laughs) so if we think about the front end of the process Most pharma companies out there will have medical information helplines. So these are helplines that are set out there so that healthcare professionals, so that's the physicians, the, the pharmacists, the nurses and others, but also consumers can contact the company for more information about the medicine and also potentially report adverse events, side effects. In parallel to that, the same thing's going on with the regulators. So in the UK, for example, we have the yellow card scheme, which these days is a web portal system where anyone can go in and report side effects of medicines they're taking. In the US, you have the MedWatch scheme, which is very similar. Most companies around the world have similar things. Plus. You've also got ongoing clinical trials, clinical studies, so data is coming in that way too. We've got data coming in from literature that I've mentioned. The regulators, when they receive stuff directly, they often pass that information over to the pharma company. So essentially, all this information is coming towards the pharma company. It all gets directed to a pharmacovigilance department. And then we go through the process of processing that data. And so that data comes in from everywhere around the world where the drug is available for patients to take, both in clinical trials and on the market. So, yeah, so the process basically consists of firstly translating the data if it needs to be translated. that gets captured into a safety database, and there are various commercial safety databases out there. This is where companies collate all the information received on their drugs. And it goes through a process whereby data is kind of standardize it's put into standard terminology in a way that is compatible with the regulatory requirements a narrative is constructed so we write a story of what's happened to the patient from beginning to end we look at various things like if the information is available to us you know what other medications were the patients taking what's their medical history what was the sequence of events so what was the time to onset if possible if we have that information between the patient taking the drug and the then reporting the side effect, what the clinical course of the side effect was, so if the patient recover, was any adjustment made to the the, the dosing, were any treatments given, and so all that gets written up. We then decide what other information do we need to know, and then there's a feedback loop to go and ask the reporter if they'll provide additional information. Usually, we ask for more information on more serious adverse events. We don't want to overburden the the reporters. Now reporters in clinical trials so physicians involved in those they're legally obliged to help with that process spontaneous reporters that we refer to which is just where any healthcare professional or consumer contacts the company that's a voluntary reporting system so we can ask them for additional information they don't have to provide it but we have to ask the questions anyway so the information gets pulled together it then goes usually goes through a medical review so we have kind of scientists pulling the data together and then we have physicians reviewing the case making sure it makes medical sense and then depending on the seriousness of the case and the other attributes that case might have to be reported out to regulators worldwide and a lot of the reports which are um, serious have to be reported out within 15 days of what we call day 0 which is the first day anyone in the company became aware of the report Mm -hmm. but to give you an idea you know the large pharma companies are dealing with potentially tens of thousands of reports a week that are coming in on all of their products so these are vast systems that are set up and they have to be set up to be able to meet all of the regulatory requirements in terms of timelines for reporting so the data is coming in the expedited reports are going out in the format that the regulators require We also have to pull together what we call aggregate reports. So these are aggregated analyses of data over time. For newer drugs, for example, those are submitted in Europe every six months. And then over time, as the drug gets older, the gap between reports gets longer. And then also, we're doing something what we call signal detection, which is where we are analysing the data and we're looking for trends in the data. Where we think we've got patterns, we're starting to then look into researching those patterns a little bit more. You know, if we start to see, for example, that I don't know, that we, we're getting what appears to be a disproportionate number of nosebleeds, let's say, in a patient cohort, we would, you know, do background research on, well, you know, is there a plausible biological mechanism that we know about through the development of the drug? Was there stuff seen in the animal studies or even the human studies that might indicate that there's a there's a root cause here we'll look into confounding effects are all these patients on other drugs which actually are likely causing that and yes yeah, so a, kind of an appraisal is done what's going on is it likely to be caused by something else and if not you know we keep on looking and those conversations then have to be shared with the regulatory authorities and over time what you'll see is the labeling of the product the professional labeling which in Europe, including the UK, is the SNPC, the Summary of Product Characteristics, which is a bit like the instruction manual for the product, which is available to healthcare professionals. And the simplified version of that, the PIL, those little leaflets you find inside of packs, those eventually get revised on an ongoing basis to accommodate the new knowledge that we're gaining on the side effect profile of the drug. So this is an ongoing process and it happens throughout the entire lifetime of the of the drug.
0: But yeah, so here's a subject that no one's talked about for a little while. COVID-19! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, I know there's probably a collective groan from people listening right now, but it seems like a relevant subject given the conversations around safety that people are having with regard to the vaccine. So do you know if there's been like a major uptick in these reports by individuals of side effects from the vaccines or do you take account of the fact that so many billions of people essentially at this point have received at least one shot of the vaccine versus how many reports you get coming in
1: Yeah so this is one of the big challenges and one of the things I should have said about drugs like vaccines is because they're given to such vast numbers of people it becomes a particular challenge to differentiate between things which are being caused potentially by the vaccine and other things which unfortunately are just bad luck of being a human being. And by that I mean so years ago when I was doing one of the academic courses we were being taught about the vast amounts of research that had to be done in terms of epidemiology before the HPV vaccines were released. So these vaccines were being released for use in teenage girls, and at the time, it was felt that there was perhaps an insufficient understanding of the general health of that population, including things like, what is the probability of a freak occurrence that a teenage girl is going to have a stroke or something like that things which we think of as of course they're exceptionally rare but they do happen Mm -hmm. And, and i'm talking about in untreated populations yeah but of course you know some of these patients are also on birth control and things like that they also have other risk factors associated with them so my understanding is before the hpv vaccines were released a huge amount of epidemiology research was done So that when the new vaccines were released, we knew that we would expect, and I'm just going to make up a number here, that, you know, one in 500,000 teenage girls would have, I don't know, some kind of fatal event, which would just naturally occur, you know, even without them having Mm. the vaccine. And so that's similar for other vaccine rollouts as well. There has to be a good understanding of the background events of other things that people will have happened to them which have nothing to do with the medicine that you're giving so you know that data is kept available and kept an eye on by the regulator authorities and also the pharma companies we don't have background rates for everything so being prepared for what might come and then you know there perhaps isn't so much panic when the first case comes in of a patient that has one of these catastrophic events but if you start to see more than that that's when you start to perhaps get more interested in is this really being caused by the vaccine or or the drug of interest so yeah a lot of upfront work has to be done before you even put the drug out there i mean in terms of the covid vaccines and the, the treatments because of the high degree of public interest and scrutiny a lot of these drugs when they were first given and the vaccines were first given so adverse events side effects were tracked through post-authorization safety studies so actually a lot of people when they got their first doses consented to have maybe a a follow-up call from an investigator who would ask them about various side effects that happened so in addition to all of the natural spontaneous reporting that was coming in there were very large cohorts of past study data coming in which is a a robust way to, to, to look at these things I know as well there are there were legitimate questions about you know the COVID vaccines in particular were produced fairly quickly compared to the usual 10 to 15 years in development of, the, of a product. But you know there are various reasons for this. So vaccines are perhaps one of the medicines where it's more possible to template out the product and therefore switch out components, but, but still have a product which is similar to other products that have previously been used but also the Covid era in terms of vaccine development and treatment development was, in in my opinion at least, a completely unique event in terms of drug development so far. If you think of drug development as a kind of universe or, I'm going to use some wonky analogies here, but let's say, as, as galaxies which have solar systems within them, that have planets within them. So if you think of a, the galaxy of drug development, you have all of these different stakeholders involved. You have the pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies and the service companies that support them. That's one area. You have the regulatory authorities, but you have many other stakeholders. You have patients, of course, they're the most important. For chronic diseases, you might have patient advocacy groups. But also, you know, you guys are part of this universe as well, because you're the ones doing basic research, which is the foundation on which all, you know, all of this is, is ultimately built. So you have universities and other research organizations. You have the funding bodies that sit behind mm-hmm. those that decide where the research money goes. And then out the other end of the process, you have ethics committees that are involved in approving clinical trials. You have payers. So. These are the organizations that ultimately pay for medicinal products. In the UK, for example, that's the NHS. Yep. In the US, that would be insurance companies. Yeah. You have many other stakeholders. So you have obviously healthcare professionals. At the end of the day, new drugs have to be woven into the fabric of medicine. And so you have to bring HCPs along with you. There are the learned bodies as well in relation to HCPs, the kind of professional bodies. So that's really at a kind of galaxy level these are all the different solar systems and then within them if you look at the pharmaceutical biotechnology and service provider solar system within those you have an incredibly complicated set of different skills departments functions you have the functions that are doing discovery so these are the early days of development where biologists and chemists are working out you know what are the new therapeutic targets we can look at Then you have the clinical development division, you have the patent divisions, you have the regulatory affairs functions, you have the pharmacovigilance functions, you have the medical affairs functions, you have the medical information functions, (laughs) there are, uh, and I'm going to miss out many, many. You have the the biostats folks, you have the medical writers, and then of course you have the manufacturing, which is in itself a completely different, you know, specialised world. you know you're dealing with a very complicated process with lots of things which are interlinked but for me if you think of all these things like if you use the layout all or- different compasses let's say and i'm talking about the compasses used to check direction not the ones used to draw circles (laughs) and if you scatter them all out they'll all be pointing at different directions you know all of these different entities have their own priorities because of course the industry as a whole is developing many different medicinal products for different reasons i think when covid came along it was like drawing a magnet across the top of all those compasses and it got all the needles to point in the same direction so you had governments who had a clear incentive to try and support the development of treatments so you had governments putting up money which was perhaps slightly unusual um, they were putting money into basic research such as the, the type of stuff that you guys do they were putting money into diagnostics which are critical for things like covid they were putting money into the development of vaccines and into treatments. And then of course, you know, you have the pharma companies where there was a scramble to try and develop something to help humanity in its hour of need. You had the regulators with a lot of focus on them, you know, and everyone watching their every move and trying to ensure that, you know, as many processes that often might take months or perhaps even years were made as efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. and. It was a unique point in time because everyone was lined up with the same objective. So it meant, for example, that parts of the industry which are normally a 9-to-5 job became a 24-7 job for a a short period of time. And there was a huge amount of collaboration which happened between the different stakeholder groups. You know, regulatory authorities offered perhaps free scientific advice to companies that were developing this stuff. They met very regularly with companies that were, were in development. They gave a lot of advice as to what their expectations were when the data was received by them. They shortened some administrative pathways, let's say, which usually take up a lot of time. They prioritise resource. So there's resource specifically waiting for this data to come in. And so, yeah, a lot of normal processes were adapted so that things could be done as efficiently as possible. And the outcome was that you know, these drugs went through the entire process in a much more efficient way than would usually be encountered. I think another thing as well is with with things like vaccines, the side effects that we anticipate to see, including the rare, unusual ones. Ordinarily, these manifest within you know, days or weeks. It's not something that usually we anticipate things to occur years later. So there was that aspect too. But but yeah, it was a it was a unique time.
0: Yeah. And actually, this is a, a good throwback to Dr. Karina Rodriguez's podcast, because she ran one of the clinical trials for the vaccine in children at USF, where I work. Ah, um, So yeah, so she talked about uh, some of the things that you mentioned as well.
1: I should I say, I was out. not involved, sadly, in, in any of the, um, the COVID vaccine development, but you know, it was fascinating to, mm-hmm. to watch and actually to see my profession become a talking point in in the news every yes day. um it was very interesting to see all of this play out
0: yes yeah, so actually that's probably a good point to pause and ask you what do you actually do okay so
1: <laughs> <laughs> so as i've kind of indicated the process of pulling in adverse event data of coding it, which is the, the term we use for tidying up all of the data, putting it into a safety database, writing those narratives, getting the medical review, getting the important cases out the other end to the regulators, writing the aggregate reports, doing the signal detection. These are very complicated processes. And yeah, every company will develop them slightly differently. You know, Small biotech companies, they might only have one product. It might only be approved in one or two countries. A top five pharma company will have hundreds of products authorised in many countries around the world. But all of these processes are put together in compliance with extremely strict regulations. Regulations that, as I said, exist in almost every country in the world. And actually the regulations kind of cross over in the sense of if you have a product that's authorised for marketing in the UK and the US, for example, you know, the the UK requires you to collect all the data and analyse it, as does the US. They also require you to collect the data from each other's territories so -hmm. so companies are in the middle of the very complicated regulatory framework which is a little bit different in each country but fortunately is harmonized through some international bodies and international terminology but building pharmacovigilance systems is complicated and it has to be done right firstly for the obvious reason that we want to protect patients it's in no one's interest that the patients are not protected but also, you know, the penalties for not complying with these complex regulatory requirements are severe. And so my job really as a let's say senior leader within a pharmacovigilant department is to make sure that we build the right structures and for these companies that we that we keep an eye out on all the areas which are you know, potential challenges and that companies are being compliant with the legislation to which we're all held and so so yeah so building pharmacovigilance systems I think is the simplest way I can describe it.
0: It sounds pretty heavy and pretty complicated.
1: Yeah I mean if you look at the the larger pharma companies if you add up all of the resource that they put into pharmacovigilance that they're legally required to put into pharmacovigilance to service the needs of their products a, a lot of things are outsourced these days if you count that comes from the outsourcing organizations as well The big pharma companies have thousands of people like me involved in the processing and analysis of this data. So it is a big area. And that is all we do. You know, we're not involved in any any other aspect of the drug. Not involved in the sales and marketing, for example, of the product, that's almost the complete opposite side of the company to us. All we do is, you know, work in this very professionalised, very standardised discipline is pharmacovigilance.
0: So David has a couple of questions. The first one should be relatively quick, which is that, is there a regulatory authority that is the gold standard?
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm not going to, this is a very politically sensitive one. (laughs) Um, There are certainly some regulatory authorities particularly in some of the larger markets who are, let's say, more prominent. So examples would be the US FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that is the Drug Regulatory Authority for the United States. In the UK, we also have an extremely prominent regulator, the MHRA. They're one of the oldest uh, regulators, um, I believe, in the world. So that's the UK Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. But, you know, every country has its own regulator. And whilst there are some who put themselves out there perhaps as world-leading regulators, there are just as many others that are doing the same important job for their countries the european union and european economic area has a slightly more complicated system because they have a coordinating regulatory authority which is the european Medicines agency the ema who many of you have heard about in news reports particularly during the the covid situation but at a national level you also have all of the the national regulators who are working in tandem with the ema
0: okay so This sounds quite different from, obviously it's very different, from what you were doing during your PhD. Yes. Um, He also wants to know, how did your PhD work prepare you to do what you do now?
1: If I could sum it up in one phrase, and this is a phrase which is overused, but I think in this case it is really true, problem solving, Mm -hmm. because it's interesting you mentioned earlier that you and I were almost engineers Well, I went from becoming a physical engineer, at least in a lab environment, Mm -hmm. to a process engineer. And, uh, you know, I always used to think very naively when I was doing the basic research with you. I used to think, look, we're solving problems that no one knows the answer to. This must be the hardest job in the world. We're not not solving man-made problems. Man-made problems must be so easy to solve. But no, (laughs) man-made problems are also particularly challenging and when i say man-made problems you know i'm not talking about problems that someone has deliberately created it's just you know logistical challenges and just the challenges caused by working in you know different regulatory environments with different sets of requirements and how to build processes that meet all of the requirements at the same time and react to events of course because it might well be that you've had a product that has been ticking along nicely for a long time and then suddenly there is a safety concern with the product and if that safety concern is in the public domain you will be deluged with reports in relation to that product called yep. stimulated reporting and you know of course sometimes companies will be subject to class action lawsuits particularly in the US so they might also receive large volumes of reports all in, a, in one go all of those reports. Have to meet the same legal timelines, but now suddenly you've got 10,000 reports landed on your desk. Each one takes four hours to process, and they're all due to wow. the regulators in 15 days. So, yeah, it, it is challenging working in a hyper regulated environment.
0: Essentially, these are problems that come about because we're humans.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah.
0: And we have to somehow live together. Yeah. So, I had a couple of questions from my little sister, and these might not be directly related to your work, but they are related to the fact that you work within an environment that involves clinical trials and patients and so on. And so Suki wants to know, are side effects from drugs usually the same for healthy people versus patients?
1: This is a great question and caused me a little bit of head scratching. I think, I mean, the answer is it depends. I think by and large, yes. But there will be some exceptions, and those exceptions include things like some of the oncology treatments, because um, obviously there is an interaction often between the drug and the tumour, for example. Mm -hmm. So in a healthy person, you can't emulate that because there is no tumour. So an example would be a phenomenon called tumour lysis syndrome, which only occur when there's a tumor to react to the particular drug but by and large yes we extrapolate safety data from healthy individuals initially which is why the earlier phases of studies are done often in healthy volunteers with some exceptions but yeah then when we move on to phase two and then phase three phase two and three are conducted in patients that have the indication of interest i.e have the disease that we're trying to treat
0: so another question she had How do you know people who are not healthy will be able to tolerate the drugs, given that initially they're they're tested on healthy people?
1: So the first thing I would say is I'm not an expert in the design of clinical trials. Mm -hmm. But as I said, as you go through phase one, which are the trials that are normally on healthy patients, you actually start out with a tiny, tiny dose. So you have an idea of dosing from your animal studies, but the data isn't always transferable. But you take the maximum tolerable dose, in in animals, including in the most sensitive animals. And you then cut that by a huge factor, by perhaps 500 fold. So you start out with a tiny amount and then you escalate up the doses to see how the patients are tolerating the drug. Not the patient subjects, I should say. So these are healthy volunteers usually. So that's phase one. But yeah, then of course, when you go into phase two, you're dealing with a different patient population. I don't know exactly how that's always done, but of course, you know, trials are put together by experts in the field and they involve your clinicians whose expertise is this particular area of medicine yeah and of course it's not just the physicians at the pharmaceutical company and the biopharma company and the scientists i should say as well also this stuff is going to regulatory authorities it's going to ethics committees all of whom will have their own areas of expertise so you know Protocols are designed around the patient and to ensure that patients are not put at unnecessary risk.
0: Ah, Sometimes David sends me one of those questions that really makes me giggle. And this is, if regulations are so important and onerous, how do I start my own biotech in the garage?
1: (laughs) Well, it's interesting, you know, companies don't necessarily have to be that big themselves to get started. But what they will need is a lot of help. Yeah. So what you'll see these days is, you know, new biotech starting up, but they rely very heavily on outsourcing. So they will partner with service providers, with contract research organisations, with contract manufacturing organisations, all sorts of other parties that have the expertise that perhaps they aren't able to pull together themselves. But yeah, there are some companies out there, particularly smaller companies in earlier development that are, you know, pretty small, might have 20 people in the company. Yeah. Um, but they will need to rely on the, the help of many others because, as I going back to the kind of universe description that I gave, you know, there are so many specialised areas that you need to have covered in order to pull together everything you need, both to run a clinical trial and also to submit a marketing authorisation mm-hmm. application, and then also keep your product compliant with all of the legal requirements that are out there. It's a lot it is a lot and you know this is why drug development is so costly because it needs a truly vast number of specialists involved and you know quite a lot of physicians as well and also you know most drugs that enter drug development don't make it mm-hmm. all the way through the other end so the end costs of medicinal products also have to cover the cost of the drugs that didn't make it and plus companies only have a certain period of exclusivity before their drug becomes generic, i.e. other companies can start making it.
0: So this is purely from a personal perspective, mm. from your point of view. What do you think about the fact that obviously you have these companies who have put so much money developing these things, which were designed to treat a global pandemic, and yet mm. we found that, for example, like entire continents like Africa still don't have a lot of people vaccinated against COVID-19. And those companies will refuse to open up the patents to allow them to be able to get people to stay healthy.
1: Yeah, it's an area that really I'm not really sufficiently qualified to talk on. And and I'm not just saying that you know through not wanting to put my foot in my mouth but particularly with some of the vaccine technologies that we use they were not simple medicines to Mm -hmm. manufacture so not simple to manufacture not simple to store not simple to distribute and sometimes i guess it is perhaps a legitimate concern of a company that if other companies start making their same drug to a lower policy that can have ramifications elsewhere now i'm not saying that that was the reason behind some of what you you mentioned now there was a vaccine that was developed the uk vaccine which Mm -hmm. was specifically developed from the outset to be made available in developing world countries let's say and specifically to be made available at cost and even the way that product was designed it can be Manufactured and stored at fridge temperature, Mm
0: -hmm, which is Um, a big deal.
1: Exactly, it it is a big deal. You know, those are all very important components to consider. It vaccine that could be used in those environments. But even you know, I I remember because I vacuumed up all of the documentaries. I think on television, Netflix, everywhere else about all of the challenges that were being faced. And you know, there were even things that you just wouldn't think about, which was you know, because the mRNA vaccines had to be stored at minus eighty. There wasn't enough minus 80 freezes yes. in the developed countries let yeah. alone figuring out how to develop and ship these to other countries with different climatic conditions and so you even had the manufacturers of that type of equipment having to up their game and suddenly churn out much more equipment than, than they previously had so yeah there's no simple answer i mean Historically there've been other challenges in the past with other types of drugs such as the HIV medications in the end access to those drugs was resolved through very careful dialogue between companies regulators others access issues I believe to those drugs and again this is just basically what I see on documentaries and other things where there are access problems these days they're not in relation to the drug supply chain they're in yep. relation to other things like people not wanting to come forward and um, receive treatment because Mm. of the stigma associated with things like that
0: so in short do you enjoy your work
1: I do I mean I can honestly say that in my work every day is different I'm very privileged in my job to support a number of different companies that are developing different products for a very wide variety of indications And, and also you know just when you think you've seen it all worked with a wide variety of medicinal products suddenly something completely new will come along for example we're now on the precipice of many commercial gene therapies coming out and you know those products have some different considerations perhaps some of these interventions are irreversible Mm -hmm. so you know what happens if Patients do start developing something rare and unexpected. You have patients surviving a lot longer than was originally envisaged. So, you know, are there other things which come about, you know, as a result of the underlying disease that just no one had ever seen before? And yet, many other types of technologies and the regulations are always having to evolve to take into account of these new therapies and the challenges associated with them. Wow,
0: well, it sounds like you will continue to live in interesting times.
1: yeah (laughs) i don't think i'm going anywhere anytime soon (laughs)
0: well thank you so much for your time today david that was fantastic and yeah as i say we kind of thought of you as soon as we started thinking about the safety surrounding things like covid vaccines and knew that was your jam so yes we very much appreciate your time today
1: okay well thank you very much So, I mentioned earlier that at an early point in my PhD, I switched to studying vascular endothelial cells that were harvested from pigs. So essentially, these were pigs that were being slaughtered for the meat industry. And so I had to look through a phone book and identify an abattoir that I could go to and get the tissue that I needed to do my experiments. So obviously this all had to start somewhere, so I put in a call to an abattoir in deepest, darkest Essex and I gingerly made my way on the train to this place, which of course was in the middle of rural nowhere. And unfortunately the first day that I picked to go, it was snowing. Now we don't get vast amounts of snow in southern England, but this was a decent sprinkling of snow. So I arrived in this quiet, rural destination and I walked across various fields. I think I perhaps just got GPS on my phone but it was very early days and I was lost in fields of white in no time at all so I ended up putting in a call to the guys to come and pick me up which they very kindly did so then um you know at that time I really didn't know what a coronary artery looked like so what I decided to do for that first trip was I just collected the fresh hearts that they were able to bring out of the processing facility so these were kind of warm pig hearts freshly harvested from animals I think I had three hearts or something like that and so I had a A large polystyrene box with me with some ice in it, and I think they were kind enough to give me the ice. So I put these bags, put these hearts, sorry, inside bags and put them in the box, and then started making my way back to London. And of course, you know, this being a cold day, the heating was on on the train, and so as I was sat on the train, in fact, I think it was when I got into the tube, I suddenly became horrified that my polystyrene box was starting to leak water and of course I knew but no one else knew on the tube that within that water were bags perhaps not secured very tightly containing hearts and containing probably a fair amount of blood and I suddenly started sweating that this puddle that was starting to pool around my polystyrene box on the floor of the tube would suddenly start to go pink and then red, and then before I knew it, I would be in serious trouble. So it was just one of those situations where the tube journey seemed to get longer and longer, and I was sweating more and more. And then it got to the point where I felt that I couldn't wait any longer. So I kind of dashed out of the tube at the next station, went up what was perhaps one of the longest escalators on the the underground and managed to just get out the other side before I caused perhaps a fake terrorist incident or something like that I was trying to think about how I would explain that I'd got three hearts in my polystyrene box and a set of scalpels bearing in mind that pig's hearts are very similar size to human hearts as well so yes I managed just about to get to the lab I clearly looked quite distressed I suppose when I got back to the lab So I started telling this story to my PhD supervisor, Dennis, and a retired professor that had come into the department, Don. And before too long, the two of them were crying with laughter at my story. So, um, So, yeah, so that was my very first trip. And yes, never, never forgotten.
0: You've been listening to Two Scientists, directed, edited, and hosted by me, Pamve Bahia, and co-produced with David Basanta Gutierrez. I really love this background track from Anish Kumar, a local artist based in David Hillman's current home of Cambridge. This really took me back to the days growing up watching Bollywood movies with my family. You can head to twoscientist.org to find links to Anish's Bandcamp page and find more of his creative mix of Indian electronica. You can also, on our website, find links to our social media and our web email address so that you can send us any messages and any thoughts that you had on this particular episode. We look forward to hearing from you at hello at twoscientists.org.
1: Our lab when we first joined it was quite old and a bit dog-eared and there was one particular chair in the office which was i mean it was like a typical office swivel chair but it had definitely seen better days and it was extremely uncomfortable and when we had lab meetings no one wanted to sit on this chair and so palm beer and i
0: nicknamed it beelzebub stool